Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue studying the latter part of Genesis, coming near to the end of the book, is in chapter 47. We'll read this morning verses 27 through 31. So Genesis 47 verses 27 through 31. This is the word of the living God as he inspired Moses to write. And so we have this infallibly, inerrantly recorded by Moses because the Holy Spirit was superintending this. And so we know that this is the very word of God. So let's attend with reverence to its reading. Genesis 47, verses 27 through 31. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen. And they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years, so the length of Jacob's life was one hundred and forty-seven years. When the time drew near that Israel must die... He called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its exposition, and its hearing. In this morning's scripture lesson, we read here of uh, Jacob's commanding Joseph to swear to him that he will not bury him Uh, that Joseph will not bury his father in Egypt where they're living when he dies, but would rather uh, take him to the land of Canaan and bury him with his fathers, he says. So we would understand that to be his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. As we consider this passage, I want to deal with the oft-misunderstood matter of swearing oaths. Uh, But I also want us to think about why it would have been so important to Jacob that he be buried in the land of Canaan. And what we will see is that, number one, Jacob had confidence in the Lord to keep his promises, and that has to do with why he would be buried. And number two, Jacob had a concern for future generations. So why he would want to be buried in Canaan will have something to do with his concern for future generations. Generations. Let's make our way through this passage of God's word, and we should see these points emerge. So Moses writes, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Just as Joseph had engineered, Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the region called Goshen, uh, that's to the northeast uh, of the, that's the northeastern part of the country. It's to the east of the Nile Delta. And here in that first verse we read there, in verse, uh, uh, verse 37, uh, we see that Israel there means, Moses means uh, the whole people. It can be a little confusing because we note that uh, Jacob, uh, the man, is also called Israel. And, uh, and 
it is, he's used, that name for him is used uh, quite a bit in these passages. But here we're talking about the whole people. It says, there they grew, they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. So uh, we know that this is speaking of the whole people. Already we are seeing God's providential care of his people in the land of their sojourn. They're growing in possessions. He, he is showing his faithfulness to keep his word to Jacob. In chapter 46, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. Israel is already on the fast track to being a great nation. Now, we need to understand by great nation, the scriptures could mean a powerful nation, but the primary meaning is just big, right? Keep in mind the words that we translate from Hebrew and Greek as nation mean people group. In the Greek, the word is, is ethnoi. Um, that's the nations or ethnos, a nation. That's where we get words like ethnicity in our own language. Uh, and uh, so that helps us remember that this means people group not so much as a nation-state as we tend to think of it. It's like the nation of France or the nation of Germany or something like that. Uh, this might be a French people or a German people, or you're talking about a people group. Uh, it, it means a group of people who share a common ancestry and culture. And what is God going to do? He promises Jacob, I'm going to make of you a great nation, a great people group. And that's already happening. We're seeing that they're multiplying exceedingly. So when you read that great nation, your first thought should be large people group. And that clearly is the case, a big extended family. And that's happening. Moses indicates that early on they were already exceedingly multiplying. They're having more and more children. Many commentators note that while the Egyptians were impoverished by the famine, we read about that last time, of how they were giving up all their property, even their very selves, uh, so that they would be fed. They came to be essentially owned by the Pharaoh through this famine. Israel, at the same time, was actually prospering. Jacob, Moses tells us, lived for 17 years in Egypt, while this was going on, while Israel was exceedingly multiplying and prospering. When he arrived in the land, he had told the Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. In other words, he was saying, Though my father and my grandfather and so on lived a lot longer than I've than I'm alive now, than they they lived to greater ages than I am at now, I'm already old and failing in body. I don't expect to live a lot longer. I don't expect that I will live as long as my father or my grandfather. But the Lord did sustain him, no, not quite as long as Isaac or Abraham lived, but another 17 years after he said, few and evil have been the days of my life, and I'm already an old man. Verse 28, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 100, 
147 years. It's meaningful that Jacob had raised Joseph for 17 years before losing him. And now Joseph has supported his father for 17 years before his death at 147. Well, near the end of that period, Moses tells us when the time drew near that Israel must die. Now he's using Israel for the individual. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, that is, Joseph said, I will do as you have said. Now the expression, put your hand under my thigh, might catch a few of us off guard. What does that mean? Now if you were uh, here for earlier sermons, we noted uh, with, in Abraham's day that he had his servant put his hand under his thigh. And I explained then what it means. But in case you've forgotten or weren't here, uh, that means that Joseph would have taken hold of, to use the term that many commentators use, the generative parts of his father. To put it delicately, uh, we're talking for men and boys here, the last place that you would want to be kicked. So just think of that. Uh, And yes, if you have that, you are a man or a boy, you are male, despite what even Supreme Court justice nominees uh, might think and be confused about what a man versus a woman is. Uh, and you don't need to be a biologist uh, to know that. A lot of centuries before there were biologists, we knew the difference between men and women. But if you want to get into biology, if you have two X chromosomes, you're female. If you have an X and a Y, you're male. That's the way it works. Um, <clears throat> As strange as this custom might seem to us, it was indeed a a well-known practice in the age. Uh, There was nothing uh, particularly uh, strange about it in in that day. Uh, We saw Abraham have his servant do this in chapter 24 when he made him swear uh, not to find a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites, from among the local people who did not know the Lord, but to seek a wife for him from among Abraham's extended family, where they would uh, have a likelihood of knowing the Lord. When an oath was sworn in this way, the one taking the oath was not only accountable to keep it during the lifetime of the person they're swearing to, but to all of his descendants. You're accountable to the generations to come when you swear an oath in this manner, uh, which is why uh, the, the oath was taken in that manner. It was like to say that all of the children who come forth from your body, I am accountable to, to keep this oath as well as to you. Jacob says that keeping this oath is how Joseph can deal kindly and truly with him. If Joseph desires to be a loving and faithful son, he will fulfill this oath. Jacob says, please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Since he spoke of one specific place, we understand this to be the cave at Machpelah where Jacob's father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham were buried. And 
Of course, who knows, it's one place with plural fathers, but in case we're confused, by the end of chapter 49, he'll reiterate this to all of his sons, and he'll specifically say, that cave of Machpelah, where uh, Abraham was buried, where they buried Sarah, where they buried Isaac and Rebekah, and where I buried Leah. That's the place I want you to bury me. So we're obviously not talking about Paddan Aram where Terah was buried or Ur of the Chaldeans where other ancestors might have been buried, but Canaan, the land of promise, and particularly the tomb where Abraham and Isaac were laid. Joseph says, I will do as you have said. And then Moses writes, then he said, swear to me. That is, Jacob said, swear to me. And he, that is Joseph, said, uh, swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Perhaps he was weary. He's approaching death, though he lives sometime longer, as we'll see. He'll give a, a pronoun- prophetic pronouncements to all of his sons and bless each one, as we'll see next week, Lord willing. Most commentators believe, however, that bowing on the head of the bed indicates that Jacob was worshiping at that time. But you notice, why would he say, now, Joseph already said, sure, I'll do that. Why would he say, well, swear it? Swearing oaths can have a certain strength, particularly in a culture that takes this sort of thing very seriously. And if you understand the Lord and know that you're accountable to him, you're going to take your oaths and your vows, any promises that you make before him very seriously. And so... Uh, Swearing an oath can give people courage or determination to do something that they might otherwise let slip. This oath, which Joseph swore, brings us to the matter then of swearing oaths. Is it even appropriate to swear oaths? Earlier we read in Matthew 5, 33-37, Jesus said again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these comes from the evil one. Similarly, his brother James, in James 5.12, says, Do not swear by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. So does this mean that Christians are never to swear oaths? Well, you'll notice that swearing by heaven or earth, Jerusalem or your own head are mentioned. Though that is given, neither Jesus nor James says, do not swear by the name of the Lord. James says any other oath, but other than what? You know, we, we might ask, uh, other, just other than the things that he's mentioned there? I would contend that he means other than what Scripture teaches. You'll notice that James gives the caution, lest you fall into judgment. And Jesus says anything... More than this comes from the evil one. Well, that brings us to a a clear problem. I believe that James is cautioning us not to swear lightly, lest we fall into judgment. 
or failing to keep a lawful oath brings us under God's judgment. Why do I think that? Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name or swear in his name. Literally, by his name shall you swear. Now, unless we are to believe that Jesus and James are contradicting Old Testament scripture here, or that Jesus would be saying that what Moses told you came from the evil one, <clears throat> we've got a problem. Moses' words came from God himself, not the evil one. Well, of course Jesus isn't saying that. So unless we're to believe that Jesus and James were contradicting the Old Testament, we, uh, we have to dig deeper to understand the meaning of their words. In Jesus' day, many Jews thought that since Deuteronomy 6.13 said, by the name, by his name, by the name of the Lord, shall you swear, they thought, well, if I swear by any other name or by something else, it's not really an oath, and I don't have to keep it. I'm not bound by the Lord to keep that. So a Jew might swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or his own head, and a Gentile would think, well, he'll hold to that. Jerusalem is his sacred city. Heaven, earth, things that his God made. His head. Of course, who doesn't want, who wants something bad to happen to their head, right? And so some Jews felt free to renege on their word to Gentiles. And they, of course, then brought God's people into ill repute when they did that. Well, Jesus says, if you swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or your own head, God still holds you accountable. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his sacred city, the city of his king. Your own head, you can't make one hair white or black. You're really swearing to God when you swear by those things. So mean what you say. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything... Less than honesty is deceit that comes straight from the devil, the father of lies. If we were to say it's sin to swear an oath, we've got a serious problem. Not only are we saying that the scriptures of the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 6, came from the evil one, which they didn't, but we'd be accusing God himself of sinning. Think of Genesis twenty-two sixteen. God said, By myself I have sworn... Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord swore oaths, gave promises by that oath to Abraham. Before the foundations of the world, he's, the Father said to Christ, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So obviously it cannot be sin to swear an oath if God gives us the example himself. What scripture forbids is the taking of rash oaths. So we ought not to take an oath before we've thought through what its implications might be. And we ought never to take an oath that would bind us to sin. If you ever find that you have taken an oath or made some covenant promise to do something that will then, in order to keep it, you find I have to sin, well then don't keep it. In the Old Testament, there was a special sacrifice that you were to make if you realized that for whatever reason, because it would make you sin, or because of physical inability, you can't keep an oath or a vow. There was a particular sacrifice to be made. Of course, Christ has fulfilled all sacrifices, and so 
Take it to the foot of the cross. Bring it to Christ. Confess your sin. Apologize to the people that you are going to be letting down because you won't be able to keep that oath. But if it doesn't bind you to sin, feel free to take an oath of office if you're elected to public office. Now, one of our historical issues in the uh, Covenanter churches has been that that an oath to support and defend the Constitution could be seen as an oath to to support a sinful document because it doesn't uh, acknowledge the lordship of Christ. And when it was first written, it acknowledged the uh, institution of slavery. And so we said, well, that would be to support a sinful document. So uh, you have to, to some way get around that. And the, the way that it has worked out in the 20th century and up to now is that uh, uh, giving an explanatory declaration that in which you say, I'll keep this oath, essentially you say, I'll keep this oath as long as it doesn't make me sin. Uh, if, a, if an oath of office is appropriate or an oath of loyalty and it's not binding you to sin, take it. Feel free to swear in a court of law if you're ever, uh, ever asked to give testimony. You can swear. It's okay to swear the oath, to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Just follow through with it. Uh, one experience I had in giving a brief testimony in a court was that the lawyer didn't want me to tell the whole truth. He just wanted me to tell a bit of the truth that was convenient for him. And, uh, and I, I had sworn to tell the whole truth. I said, well, now wait a minute. I need to tell the whole truth here. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Mean what you say. But why was it so important to Jacob that he be buried in Canaan that he wouldn't just take his son's word for it saying, sure, I'll do that, but made him swear, swear to me. And why, we'll come to that also, why this the oath in that particular mode. Why was it so important that he be buried in Canaan? That he would make Joseph swear this solemn oath. The Lord promised Jacob, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. He had told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, and 14, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possession. And then Genesis fifteen sixteen. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Here is where Abraham was in the land of Canaan. Jacob is confident that the Lord is going to fulfill those promises. But we might still ask, well, why then does he even care so much that he's buried there? He's going to be dead. You know, he'll be dead. Will it really make a difference to him? You know, on the one hand, if I die while I'm in your midst here, and Kim and I do pray that we can stay here a very long time, so who knows, I might find myself in the, the midst, even if I die of old age, and then not before then, uh, that I might find myself still here in Clay Center at that time. If something happens to me before then, and I die in an early age, does it really make a difference to me whether I'm buried in the cemetery where my family is back in Illinois or I'm buried here at the church's cemetery or some other place? Well, in the long run, not much difference. It's not really, I'm, I'm confident the Lord will keep his promises and uh, 
I'll be raised up at the last day. I might have some sentimental concerns like, will my wife be buried near me? But if, say, I die at a young age and she remarries and, and wants to be buried next to her second husband, that's not going to probably bother me much. I'm not. <clears throat> In the long run, it will be a matter of indifference where we're buried. I'll be raised up to dwell in the kingdom of Christ, and that's what counts. Not the landscape or who I'm near when I rise up. I'll have eternity to reconnect with people that I missed and others that I never even got to meet yet. Hebrews 11, 13-16 says, These, including Jacob, all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, Embrace them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they see that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. In other words, uh, Jacob could have just gone back to Canaan if he wanted to before he died and died there. But now, Hebrews says, they desire a better country, country that is a heavenly country. Therefore... God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Jacob was looking forward to something better even than the land of Canaan, but he knew that in the meantime, possessing Canaan was a huge part of God's providential plan, God's covenant plan for his people. He had promised the land to Abraham and to Isaac. He had affirmed that promise, and then also to Jacob, that his descendants would inherit that land. And the testimony that God was keeping his word was incredibly important to Jacob. It's very meaningful to him that he might rise up on the last day alongside of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Rebekah and his own wife Leah. If he were simply being sentimental about this, where he wants to be buried, we would expect him to request to be buried near Bethlehem where his beloved Rachel was buried. Lay me beside Rachel. I would think if if I were in his position and were just thinking sentimentally, that's what I would say. But there's another reason that he would want to be buried at Machpelah, which he will, he will clearly indicate at the end of chapter 49, by Abraham and Isaac. He is thinking covenantally. The Lord made his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and then passed that covenant to Jacob to give the land to their offspring, specifically to Jacob's offspring. Jacob has a covenantal concern here for future generations. On one hand, if he dies in Egypt and he were buried there, big deal, right? But here he's, he's really so concerned for future generations that he makes Jacob swear this oath and think about the mode of the oath that he requires Joseph to swear. He says, put your hand under my thigh. This is a form of oath that is accountable to the posterity of the person that you're swearing the oath to. To all generations of the offspring. So he is thinking of his descendants when he has Jacob or when he has Joseph swear this oath. And it's also apparent in the content of the oath that Jacob is thinking of future generations. He's going to be dead. So he won't get any enjoyment about the tomb that he's in. He'll rise up at the last day and 
Whether he's in Egypt or Canaan, he'll still dwell in the new heavens, new earth. The boundaries of ancient Canaan will be a moot point at that point. He might be unclear, as we have a lot more revelation from God to look at in Scripture. He might be unclear on details that will be revealed to later prophets and apostles, but he clearly wants his burial in Canaan to be something known to future generations of Israelites, of his descendants. His tomb in Canaan will convey to them that the Lord is God. And he's a God who keeps his promises. Think of Psalm 78, verses 2 through 7. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generations to come might know them, the children who would be born that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That's the kind of thing that Jacob is thinking of here. He wants generations to come to know that God has kept his promises so far so you can trust all the promises he's he's made that have not yet been fulfilled. So our application for us today is have confidence in the Lord to fulfill his promises. He fulfilled these promises to Jacob. We see that the generations to come after him did go back to that land. They did settle that land. And we'll see in the future that Jacob's sons will keep this promise to bury their father in Canaan. Have confidence in the Lord to fulfill his promises. Think of the promises he's made to us. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Christ will return. You can have confidence that will happen. He's with you even to the end of the age. You can have confidence that that is true. There will be a new heavens and new earth. God has always kept his word before. Why would he not keep it in the future? The Lord will dwell in the midst of his people. Live in the light of these facts. They are indeed facts. And also have concern for future generations that they might know that God has kept his promises in the past and therefore will keep them in the future. If Christ continues to tarry, if his return is yet far in the future, generations to come after us will need to know that God is faithful. And we need to show his faithfulness. Give testimony to his faithfulness in your life in a way that can be known in generations to come. How might the decisions that you make, the actions that you take now, affect future generations? Maybe it's because I have an education as a historian. I'm uh, often thinking of uh, what will the things that we say, particularly the things we put in writing now, how might those be read by future generations? And we can, we can never predict the changes in language that can come that might cause misunderstandings in the future. But it's one of my little peeves. I'm, I'm a, uh, so delighted to be in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And, uh, and so this is a very small peeve. I have very few things that have ever disappointed me in this denomination. Uh, 
but something I think could use some improvement. Let's put it that way. As the, a number of times that I've been in at Synod, and we're reading the Constitution of the Church, saying, well, here's what our Constitution says we're supposed to do. And then somebody will get up and say, well, back in 1987 when we passed that and I was here, uh, what we really meant was, and I want to get up and shout, if that's what you meant, that's what you should have put in the document. Future generations are never going to know what you were thinking unless you write it down. We should be thinking of future generations. How will they interpret what we have done But particularly, we need to be thinking, how will they know that God has been faithful? What are you leaving behind for them when you depart from the world? I'm not talking about monetary things. What what testimony are you leaving behind? Let it be a testimony to the faithfulness of the Lord. Let's pray. Indeed, O Lord, you have been faithful, and so we trust in your promises. Build up our confidence in you day by day and let us give testimony to your faithfulness to the generations to come. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.